everybody. I, my name is Ike Shepherdson. I'm one of the pastors at Hope Denver. So glad that you're here tonight. Thanks for being here. Uh, you can turn in your, your Bible to Luke chapter 5. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Luke is about uh, three quarters of the way through the Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you find that you're in Revelation, you've gone to the very end, take a turn backwards and you'll, you'll get there eventually. The book of Luke chapter 5. We're in a series right now called Culture. Culture. That's what, that's what we're doing right now. If you've missed some of this stuff, you can always catch the podcast. I've been actually blown away by how many people are listening to the podcast. I mean, it's like Malcolm Gladwell and then us, so it's like pretty cool. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, but it really, I, I'm really excited. There's a lot of people who are listening, so I'm glad you're doing that. But what does it mean to live according to the way of Jesus? That's what we're focusing on right now in this series on culture. What does it mean to live according to the way of Jesus? Uh, what kind of life did Jesus live? What, what was his style? How did, he, how did he comport himself? What was he interested in? What were his attitudes? That's what we're talking about with this th- series on culture, is we're talking about a way of Jesus, a lifestyle that's like Jesus. Um, being a follower of Jesus is like being immersed in a whole new culture. Being a follower of Jesus is like being immersed in a whole new culture. Uh, it's not about behavior modification. It's not about adding spirituality onto the rest of your life as if you could like bolt on like a little improvement or something like that. Uh, it's, not a, it's, it's not about any of those kinds of things. It's about living a whole new life. Following Jesus is like that. This is why the, the, the Bible talks about God's culture using the word kingdom. That's the way that the Bible describes the, the way of Jesus. It's, it's this way of a kingdom. See, what we believe is, as followers of Jesus is that God's kingly authority is breaking into the earth right now. That Jesus' followers are simply trying to live their lives in alignment with the fact that there's a new regime. That there's a king who's come. And we're just responding to that. Let's go back to the word culture for just a second. Have, have you ever had culture shock before? Anybody ever had culture shock before? You know what I'm talking about? This is where you go to a place that's not your home. It's not, it's not where you're from. Uh, maybe it's, it's when you've traveled, especially overseas, people get culture shock. And you get immersed into a culture that you don't know. And it can be difficult and frustrating. The sights, the smells, uh, the people of your everyday experience are now different. And when these things dramatically change, it can leave you feeling like a little off balance. Maybe even more, you're more prone to be grumpy. <laughs> you're more prone to be a little bit uh, impatient or upset and depressed. Uh, and actually, I have a story of culture shock I'll share with you. Uh, I moved to Canada a couple of years ago uh, to start my PhD at the University of Toronto. So I, I moved from Littleton. I sold my house in Littleton. I had grown up in the Denver metro area. I moved to Toronto. Now, Canada is not vastly different in its culture, but it's different enough, <laughs> especially Toronto. Half of the people who live in Toronto were not born in Canada. So there's people from all over the world. You can hear a different language on every street corner. Uh, and, and moreover, it's, it's just a different climate. It's, it's obviously very, very cold there. Uh, it's, it's as cold as you would think it would be, maybe even colder. Uh, and, and it's a very different kind of place from what I was used to growing up. And I had this time where shortly after my wife and I moved there, and we only had two kids at the time, we were driving to get some house supplies, you know, as you're, ch- you're settling into a new place and a new town. And so if you're trying to get, like, you know, brooms and things like that, dustpans, uh, kitchen rags, you go to Walmart, right? And they have Walmart up there, and it's a little bit like Walmart here. It's like, this is convenient, but a little bit depressing, right? <laughs> so we found a Walmart, and I remember driving around in the streets of Toronto, and 
and there were cyclists kind of zooming past me. All of the street signs, uh, all the, the, the uh, speed limits were in kilometers per hour, and who knows what that even is anyway. I think they just made it up, right? And so I'm driving around, and I'm starting to get frustrated. I couldn't remember where the streets were. Avenues and streets were a little bit different up there. And I was getting really frustrated and flustered. We had the kids. They were crying. And all of a sudden, I just blurt out to my wife, I miss my dad. <laughs> totally, totally authentic. I miss my dad. My dad and I have a good relationship. We're good friends. <laughs> I had culture shock. And I recognized it because I had taken people on like mission trips before. I've been, I've been around the world to a number of different you know, countries. And so when I said that, I was like, oh, I have culture shock right now. I'm going to be okay. This is going to be fine. You know, when you follow Jesus, sometimes his, his way of life can be a little shocking and upsetting. Seeing how Jesus lived can leave you with a little bit of culture shock. It can leave you feeling really uncomfortable. Uh, the message of Christianity is never like, here's a nice thing to keep you comfortable at night. In fact, the message of Christianity is often, often very, uh, very upsetting. It can be very concerning at times. And if you had that response to Jesus in the past, you're in good company. <laughs> this is why people write books about this stuff is because some of this stuff is difficult. But the way that Jesus actually lived his life left people around him in culture shock as well. And I want to tell you a little bit of a story tonight about that. It has to do with Jesus' radical inclusion. The way that he lived his life was marked by radical inclusion. See, Jesus lived where uh, people could belong in a community in a radically inclusive way. So what we're focusing on tonight is that Jesus embodies radical inclusion for those who are radically far from God. That's good news, right? That's good news. You can say amen if you agree. Uh, you can throw things at me if you don't. Uh, Jesus lived, he embodies this radical inclusion for people who are radically far from God. Let's look at, at Luke chapter 5. This is uh, uh, verse 27 and following, and this is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. And then Levi held a, a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, we receive the word of God with gratitude today, and we open up our lives to it. I pray that you would, you would uh, read into us now and expose in us the things that need to change. And may we embody in our lives this radically inclusive way of life that you embody. Lord, we want to hear from you. If you agree, you can just tell him that right now. God, I want to I hear from you. I want to encounter you. I'm willing to listen to you. And Lord, I pray that as we learn from the scriptures tonight, that we'd be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, that we'd be more and more like this wonderful person. In whose name we pray, amen. 
So Jesus embodies a radical inclusion for those who are radically far from God. Now, this passage that we're reading right here, I want to give you a little bit of context around it. Uh, if, if you think about Jesus' life, he, he, uh, he has this kind of announcement of God's kingdom. And we talked a little bit about this last week. That he announces that the king has broken into the world. That God is returning, and in me, you're seeing God start to change things. That the kingdom has come near. That it's here in Jesus, but it's changing, and it's not fully realized yet. So you see this in Jesus' life. And one thing that he does very early in his kind of public ministry, his, his kind of first public exposure to people, is he goes to the synagogue, and this is in Luke chapter 4, right, right before what we just read here, and he picks up a scroll, and the scroll is from the book of Isaiah, which is a, a, a Hebrew prophet who lived about 800 years before Jesus. And Jesus reads these words from Isaiah's scroll, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus is announcing his mission. He's saying, here's what I'm here to do. He's saying that this, this prophecy from this person 800 years ago is being fulfilled today as I'm reading these words, which would have been a shocking thing for somebody to do. A Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, which is in the, the northern part of, of Judea, uh, it would have been kind of a backwater in the Roman Empire. And he says, you see in me the fulfillment of these ancient words. And he's saying that you'll know that it's the case because I'm pro proclaiming freedom for those who are prisoners. I'm saying that people who are oppressed can have that oppression lifted off of them. That things are going to start changing for the lowliest in society. Now what he does right after this is that Jesus says that this message of good news, that this actually applies to people who aren't Jewish as well. And everybody gets really upset about that. In his, in his culture, he starts, he starts to say, hey, you know those people, those Gentiles, those non-Jews? They are welcome as well. And God has a plan to welcome them as well. And so immediately people start, people start getting upset with his teaching. But they're still fascinated with him. So he goes throughout Judea, which is in the southern part of what's now Israel, and Galilee, the northern part of what's now Israel. And he goes around and he teaches with authority. And people know that when Jesus starts talking that they need to pay attention. It's unsettling, but they need to start paying attention. People are fascinated with him, and he actually even does things like he heals people. He, there are people who have demons that live in them, and Jesus helps to, helps to remove those demons. See, in a supernatural worldview, which is the worldview of the Bible, this makes sense. There are, there are non-human persons that are spiritual, and these, some of these non-human persons that are spiritual you might call angels, some of them you might call demons, people that are uh, uh, persons that are, are against God and against his people and try to sow discord and, and suffering among people. Jesus takes those demons out of people. He heals them of their sicknesses as well. And he claims that he's called to preach the good news of the kingdom to everywhere in that area, to other towns. And so what does a preacher need? Other preachers to help him out. <laughs> All right, and so he asks other people to help him out. He says, all right, I need, I need some other people here. He starts recruiting people, and he says, like, hey, you, you fishermen, I want you to come and fish for people, which is cool because the people that he's recruiting are fishermen. <laughs> they're lowly people. They're not people who have seminary degrees. Uh, they're people who are very lowly, and he says, hey, you, I want you to help me out. Start fishing for people, and again, he keeps healing people. He, he doesn't go
go after the healthy. I want you to see that. That's the context of this passage. He doesn't go after people who think that they have it together. He goes after people who know that they're sick. He goes at people at the margins of society. And even he starts forgiving people's sins. That's a big deal. He starts looking at the lowly and say, hey, because you trusted me, your sins are forgiven. And this really starts to upset people. So what Jesus is doing is he's embodying this radical inclusion. Not only are people welcome on a social level, but they actually can be welcome and made right before God himself. They can be welcomed into God's family. This is an incredible kind of inclusion. <laughs> this is an, an, an incredible thing you see in Jesus. So let's look at verse 27, and we'll get into the scriptures here a little bit more. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. I like that the Bible says that Jesus saw this tax collector named Levi. Jesus sees a person who's a tax collector, and he sees things differently than other people see them. See, most people, when they saw a tax collector, they would have saw somebody who was a collaborator with the hated Roman government. The Roman imperial authority had taken over Judea, had taken over Galilee, and they were in charge, and tax collectors, especially this Jewish tax collector, we know that because his name is Levi, it's a Jewish name, this Jewish tax collector, he was a collaborator with the Roman government. He was over and against his own people to enforce the Roman law. Now, Jesus sees that kind of person who would have been seen as the lowliest of the low in society and says, hey, you, come and follow me. There's a welcome that's given to that person. It's because Jesus sees differently. Tax collectors were often given to abuse of authority as well. They would often take more than what they should have. So if your tax was X, they would add X plus one onto it, and they'd skim that off the top and take it home and make it theirs. See, Levi was a Jew who was actively collaborating against and extorting his own people. But Jesus sees this man and invites him to follow. This is a different kind of seeing. You know, Jesus doesn't just see you for your past. He doesn't just see you for your present either. He doesn't just see you according to how everybody else would measure you. When Jesus sees you, he sees your future as well. See, Jesus looks at this guy, Levi, and he says, that's the kind of person that I want on my team. And it's not because Jesus like, was looking past all of the bad stuff Levi had done. Of course, Jesus would have known about that. But he sees this person and says, hey, I see your future can be different. And he calls after him. This is audacious <laughs> because Jesus would have been one of those who likely would have suffered some extortion, right? He was a Jewish carpenter. He was a tradesman. He had to pay taxes. He probably was extorted or at least knew people who were extorted by these kinds of tax collectors. So who does Jesus think that he is? <laughs> who does he think that he is to welcome this kind of man? This guy's his political superior, but his social inferior, and Jesus welcomes him. Who does Jesus think that he is to do this? Jesus has a different kind of confidence, and it's a confidence about this man. When you suffer doubt, self-doubt, and uncertainty, you should know that Jesus looks at you as someone who's made in the image of God and whose future is bright. You guys all have that. I have it too, where we suffer self-doubt, uncertainty, but Jesus looks at you and says, your best days are ahead of you. And that's good news, right? 
That's good news. And when he looks at you, he, he has a different estimation of you than what you have of yourself and a different estimation than what the world has of you. People are always judging. People are always looking and measuring you and, and saying, here's the kind of person that you are. But Jesus says, your best days are ahead of you. Follow me. And that's the way to get there. See, Levi was able to thrive in the kingdom of God. The only person who can confidently invite a man like Levi to follow him is someone who can forgive sins, someone who can look into the future and, and know that it's bright if you're willing to follow Jesus. However, what Jesus does here in calling this man Levi, it will sting against any sense of pride or self-sufficiency that we have. As we're reading this story, if we read it and, we, and we, we're able to see, hey, you know what, I don't really need this. I don't really need somebody to come after me. I've got it together on my own, thank you very much. Then this will be offensive to you. Because in this story, you should see yourself on the other side of Jesus' invitation to follow him. And if you don't realize that, at least in some minor way, you're in the kind of sad situation that Levi is in, then maybe you have some pride that's keeping you from having everything that God wants you to have. So this will be hard for you. Jesus' command will be hard for you if you have pride and self-sufficiency. But Levi isn't offended. That's a good thing there. Look at verse 28. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. That's, <laughs> that's like something that's, something that's really cool to me. That Le Levi leaves everything. Now, this is Luke's way of saying that he's repenting. Uh, that kind of idiom of, like, he left everything doesn't mean that he literally, like, threw his money all over the ground and walked away. It's possible that he did that. But what Luke is trying to indicate with that phrase, left everything, is that Levi had a change of heart and a change of mind. That he said, this way of life that I've been living needs to be different. He's repenting. Now, he didn't necessarily give up all of his possessions, though, because how could he have thrown a banquet, which he does in just a moment here. But see, what rabbis would do is rabbis would often invite new followers. So this is only strange because of who he's inviting. Jesus is inviting this tax collector. Now, Levi's response is a bit surprising as well, because whatever pride that he had, think about this guy. This is a guy who's a Jew, who's a collaborator against his own people, and he had to have some pride or at least some sense of I have a good reason for doing this. Whatever those things were, were not strong enough to keep him in his old lifestyle. His, his, his response is surprising because he's willing to give up this political position for the sake of a different kind of inclusion and welcome. See, and it may have been accompanied by some danger as well. Because if you have somebody who's a tax collector, they're protected by the Roman government. But all the people around Levi would have remembered all of the bad things that he did, right? And there was actually a, a political party in, in, uh, in, in uh, Judea and Galilee during that day called the Zealots. And Zealots killed collaborators. Now, if, if Levi was under the Roman government's protection, they would have been less likely to target him. Although, of course, they did that anyway. But as somebody who's now, uh, who is a collaborator, who's stepping out of his political position, he would have actually had probably a little bit of danger in doing so. See, all of that, all of, that all, of the, all of those considerations for Levi were still not enough to keep him in his place of pride and self-sufficiency. He's willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. Look at verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. So what, what's Levi's response 
he immediately starts sharing and inviting other people. I love this. What a wonderful way to respond to that kind of inclusion. When you're included by somebody like this, then you want to show that to other people. He immediately starts sharing his possessions. There's a, there's a reason that we talk at Hope Denver about giving money every week. It's because money is the kind of thing that if you hold on to it, and if you try to keep your control over it, it will again and again take you away from the heart of God. Money is the thing that people worship. In our culture, it's, always, it's either money or, or, uh, or how you look or some kind of adventure. Those are the things that people worship in our culture. So we're going to keep preaching against that because that's the kind of thing that will keep you far from God. But it didn't keep Levi far from God. He had means. And what does he do? He spends it on others. <laughs> I love that. What a cool response. And Levi immediately starts exposing other people to Jesus. He starts to, to tell the good news about what Jesus did. He invites people into his home. See, this is actually something that is a key part of who we are at Hope Denver. And this is why we talk about, about joining a group, joining a, a hope group. These, these are, are, are groups that meet in homes every week or every other week. Uh, if you want to find out more information of that, you can, you can go to hopedenver.com. We have a page that talks about groups. You can sign up there. But this is a big deal for us. Because when you meet Jesus, you need to immediately start sharing that goodness with other people in community. That's the natural response. You see this again and again in the Bible, that when Jesus, when, when Jesus starts to change people's lives, they start sharing food together <laughs> and talking about life together. This is, the, this is the natural response. It's very unnatural to be atomistic people like we are in the, in the modern West, to be people who, who go to work all day and then come home and close the door and lock it and stay inside our house all night. I'm not saying you can't be a legitimate introvert. I'm just saying that life was meant to be shared. And the proper response to Jesus is showing others the radical inclusion that you've been shown. That's the right kind of response to Jesus. So what you see here is there's a banquet. And Levi, Levi has these friends that, that he's welcomed into this banquet. Now, this actually would have been, there w this would have been a specific kind of banquet. Uh, we don't really have, like, styles of banquet per se. Uh, uh, but in, in, in the ancient Near East, this would have been something that was known as the symposium. And actually, the, the Greco-Roman world had this as well. The symposium. A symposium was a dinner that you would hold in which you would have uh, an honored guest who would be a teacher. And that teacher, their job at the dinner was to bring lively conversation and instruction into people's lives. Now, the host of that dinner was also somebody who was thought to be in a very privileged place. And they, they, were, they were also known kind of for their wisdom. And the guests were honored guests. They were seen as equals. So even though there's a teacher and a host who have some kind of good reputation, that goodness of reputation is actually shared by anybody who's invited. So that if you're invited to that symposium, then you're seen as being equals with the people who are teaching and hosting. This is really cool because the people who are the honored guests in this dinner are tax collectors. <laughs> there are more people who are on the margins. And, and, and the way that Luke writes it, he, he says that they are tax collectors and others. Did you notice that? But then later on, when, when there are people who are kind of accusing Jesus of, of, you know, kind of not doing this right and why are you eating with these bad people, it, they refer to these others as being sinners. We don't really know what, what they did or why they were on the outs with, with, this, with society. But the main thing to know is this, is that the people who are given this place of honor 
at the symposium with Jesus, they are the ones in society that would have been looked down upon the most. And that's good news for you and for me whenever you feel like you're looked down upon. And that's good news for those who are not yet a part of the family of God, people in your sphere of influence, people who you can bring into your home and you can welcome into your life, that if you're looked down upon by society in front of Jesus, you sit in a place of honor. This meal speaks to the character of Jesus' mission. One thing that Jesus does, I don't, th- I don't know if you notice this, Jesus comes fully embodied. That is that he's not just saying like, hey, I want you to know that you're welcome in God's family, see you later, that he actually shows up and eats with people. He shows up fully embodied. He's ready to break down boundaries by being physically present with people. That's a key thing. Sometimes what we like to do is we like to, we like to you know, send people an encouraging note by text, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We like to do things like give our money to people who are, who are doing justice overseas, and that's, of course, a really good thing to do. But there's something very special about the way of Jesus, the culture that Jesus lives in, is that you actually show up with all of who you are, and you show generosity with your actions, with your presence. It's not me sending a check or sending a text message. It's me being with you and serving you. It's a richer, deeper kind of inclusion. See, sharing a meal means sharing lives. Sharing a meal means sharing lives. You can't have a superficial conversation at something that takes a little while. (laughs) You're forced to go a little bit deeper in meals. See, if... uh, If you're in a regular relationship with other followers of Jesus, you should be doing things like sharing a beer with them, inviting them over to your house, going to grab a cup of coffee with them. Make that a part of who you are, because that's a part of how Jesus lived his life. See, hope groups, what we do here, our our, our small group structure at, at Hope Denver, this is not really a take it or leave it thing for Christians. This is something we're very passionate about. This is what we're called to do. It's inherent in the vision of Jesus' moral life is to have people with you, sharing life with you in your home and in your your regular activities. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see all this. Those, Those teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I, I, I'm, I'm sort of blown away. When I read this here, it says that they complained to his disciples. I just want to pause for a second on this like, idea of radical inclusion and just talk about the, the way to not do it. Is that these guys had a beef with Jesus, and what do they do? They complained to his disciples about it. I just want to say from, from a Christian perspective, from a perspective of being a pastor here, that that's a very uh, aberrant way of living your life. If you have a problem with somebody, you need to address it with that person. Do it with gentleness. Be direct. But you see that these guys are cowardly because they're unwilling to confront the person who's causing them to have some intellectual and existential discomfort. They're unwilling to actually talk to him and try to make a point of it, but they complain to his disciples. Do you see how this attitude, and I'm going to go back to the inclusion thing here, is actually over and against the whole notion of inclusion. Because what this is, this way of talking about other people, this way of of pot-shotting other people's reputations as opposed to speaking to them directly, that this way of living life is actually counter to the kind of intuity and inclusion that Jesus tried to live. Jesus calls us to live as, as unified people, and when you complain to other people instead of confronting the person who's injured you, you actually stir up disunity, and that's the opposite of inclusion. Got a little excited there. 
hope that's okay. <laughs> these guys, these, these Pharisees, what they were concerned with is they see that Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and these sinners, right? And what they were worried about is that Jesus is breaking down boundaries. He sees boundaries that people have in the social order. And Jesus is a God who breaks down boundaries. He looks at walls and says, I'm going to get rid of those. I'm going to make this a little uncomfortable for people because I want to show them the way of life that is truly life. I want to show them how to live life to the fullest. And so Jesus breaks down these boundaries. This is something beautiful about him. Oh, I hope you love this about Jesus. And if you don't yet, you will. He's a boundary breaker. The love of Jesus extends to people on the new left whose social policies scare you half to death. The love of Jesus extends to those people on the alt-right whose, whose rhetoric and whose verbiage makes you incredibly uncomfortable. The love of Jesus breaks down those boundaries. It extends to everybody. It's incredible. It goes to the sick. It goes to the imprisoned. The love of Jesus goes to the homosexual. The love of Jesus goes to the undocumented. If you're looking for a master who can confirm your prejudices, then you can look elsewhere because Jesus is a boundary breaker. He looks for all of these ways that people put up boundaries and says, my love is stronger than all of that. Jesus needs to be our king who can break down our walls. See, in our culture, Every group and subgroup looks for some kind of political affirmation. Everybody looks for you to affirm their lifestyle, and if you can legislate to affirm it, then that's even better. As people want their lifestyle to be accepted and recognized as good and legitimate, not accepted in the sense of in a liberal democracy, we don't, we don't try to use force to coerce other people, but for everybody to say, your way of life is good and legitimate, that's what people want. In our culture, that's what every group and subgroup is looking for. But this is a little bit different in the way of Jesus. Things work differently in God's kingdom. The, the uh, sociologist of religion and pastor Mark Sayers has this to say about it. He says that the church will not be carriers of recognition politics, which seeks to affirm people in the way that they wish to be affirmed. The church affirms that, that the identities that we devise apart from God are the problem. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we, like sheep, have gone astray. The church, rather than reinforcing our sinful identities with recognition politics, gives the deepest recognition possible that each person is made in the image of God, is truly seen and known by the creator of the universe, and can be adopted into his family regardless of the identities that they used to hold. The gospel says you are more than your orientation you are more than your experience of gender, your, ex your marital status, and your societal role. You are a child of God, and that is good news. The church doesn't play recognition politics because the church wants to break down all of those boundaries and say that all are loved. All are sinful, but all are deeply loved and affirmed by God. Your identity as a child of God is richer and truer than any politics of identity. You could get all the recognition that you want from culture and from the government, but none of that will be true and life-giving affirmation. Of greatest importance to you and to me is that the king of the universe looks at us and says, you are beloved. And more importantly, for those who are gathered here tonight, there are people in your sphere of influence, people that you know, and they want to play the game of recognition politics. Don't play that game. They are loved by God.
as they are with a deeper affirmation than any recognition politics could ever give them. You need to think about that when you look at your friends and your family, that this way of life is radically inclusive, but it's not easy, and it doesn't play according to the rules of this present age. Want to know why? Because it plays according to the rules of the kingdom that is to come in Jesus. It's a different kind of political rule-breaking rule there. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus, why are you eating with these people? They're the wrong kind of people after all. And Jesus replies this way. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, he's not saying here that he's only come for tax collectors and, and people who are on the outs in society. He's saying, though, that if you don't recognize your need for a doctor, then you're always going to be sick. If you don't recognize that you don't need saving, then you're never going to get your Savior. If you think that you're fine, then you're not going to respond to his message. See, in keeping with the, the tradition of the Hebrew prophets before him, Jesus, Jesus he, he's in line with these other Jewish prophets. And he, this, this tradition of, prof, uh, of, of prophecy always had this idea that the way that people find true peace in their lives is by having a right relationship with God. That is that God is who he is, and if we're willing to live our lives in accordance with who he is, then we can have what the Hebrews called shalom, which means something like peace between God and humanity and humanity and the earth and humanity with one another. That there's this kind of overwhelming peace that's living under God's authority. The only way to have that is if you have right relationship to God. So Jesus has this basic conviction. You're alienated from God because of your sin. If you have restoration from God, uh, restoration with God, then you're healed. So these Pharisees, they need healing as well, but they don't think that they need it. The tax collectors and the sinners, they knew that they had a problem. They knew that they were on the outs. They felt spiritually poor, and they said, we need this kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, if you think that you're healthy, then I can't really help you. I'm not going to force you into this, but if you recognize that there's something in you that's broken or that's sick, I can mend it, and I can heal it with my power. This is what Jesus does. The tax collectors and sinners were those in Jesus' culture who thought that they didn't have a place, and Jesus is saying, you actually have a place of honor. I've come here for you. Those who are thought to be outcasts are most treasured by Jesus. Now, of course, if you think that you're better than others, then you don't need God's inclusion. And if you think that you don't need God, then you won't be able to receive his welcome. But if you're willing to see your need, then you will receive the most affirming welcome. You'll benefit from the most radical inclusion possible. You'll see that you're welcomed and affirmed and treasured and loved. And that's a wonderful thing. As we kind of think through the, this passage here, I want, I want us to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Levi, where Jesus says, follow me. That's the question for us. Are you willing to follow Jesus? And if you follow him, you're following him into this way of life that I've been describing tonight, a way of life that's radically inclusive. It doesn't play the recognition politics of, <laughs> of North American culture, far from it but it gives a deeper affirmation that's based on God's spoken word. And his word's going to be the last word.
Let's stand up together tonight, and worship team, I'll have you come up. One thing I think that would be an appropriate way to respond to Jesus is Levi's way of responding. Uh, you notice this in Levi, that it says that he, le he left everything to follow Jesus. Did you notice that? And remember what I said about him leaving everything? That actually meant that he had a change of heart and a change of mind. He was willing to look at the way that he was leaving his life, or he was living his life, and he was willing to make a turn. And that's what leaving everything meant for him, is that he had to leave that whole way of life behind. I think that would be good for us today, as we think about Jesus and his call to follow him, is to look at those patterns of thought, those actions and attitudes in our lives, and leave some of those things behind today.